0: Please pray with me. Lord Jesus Christ, you are the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the God of gods. We ask, Lord, that uh, we would hear from you this morning. Open our hearts, God, and it's in your name we pray, amen. I knew the processional was going to be fun, but I I didn't realize it was going to be that fun. (laughs) Thanks. You could probably tell I was a little nervous, but that was great. (laughs) So you're probably wondering, uh, the service might feel a little strange right now because we didn't have a gospel reading immediately after the New Testament reading, but that's because the gospel uh, of which I will be preaching from uh, was at the beginning of the service, uh, found on page five of your bulletins. So there's, there's probably no one among famous TV stars who's more famous and more well-beloved than Mr. Rogers, right? Right? And it's, I heard an amen at that. Okay? And then also, as soon as I said his name, uh, a lot of you just smiled. That was really funny. Um, it's, it's, it's almost as if there's this, you know, whenever Mr. Rogers' name is, is said, it's almost as if people instantly get this look on their face like, hmm, I love that man. Yes, Mr. Rogers. He's a good man. Uh, I didn't realize this until recently, but he was actually a, a Presbyterian minister as well. Uh, which as soon as I heard that, I was like, ah, oh, yes, yes, great. Uh, you know, we're probably all familiar with the song, you know, Won't You Be My Neighbor. We're familiar with the opening sequence of uh, events uh, on, on that show. A lot of the themes from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood uh, would touch on things that are very pertinent to kids, uh, things to help calm their anxiety levels, such as uh, how, what's it like to visit the hospital, or what's it like going to daycare? Or what happens when a pet dies? Or what happens when a new baby is coming into the house? So these are, these are topics that you, know, you and I kind of take for granted but are anxiety producing for kids, right? But sometimes he would touch on even more serious topics. Uh, so even when, when the nation was having heated discussions about race, uh, he would have someone uh, come of color and talk about their experiences. Or sometimes he would have someone who's handicapped come and talk about what it's like to be handicapped. And he would give dignity to these people. And he would help provide language to kids about how to talk about these kinds of things. Now some people might mock his show and call it a little ridiculous at times. and On a surface level, it, it kind of is a little ridiculous, right? I mean, the, the man comes into his home and he takes off his shoes and he puts on a sweater and he kind of has this silly song. The, the set is jokingly minimalistic, and it's very cheap. Uh, the puppets are kind of goofy and kind of ratty looking. Um, but again, I, I think that's part of his charm, right? Uh, he, he had this great uh, dignity to him in his gentleness, uh, in his way to bring people in. Well, one last piece about Fred Rogers. Uh, in 1997, the Daytime Emmys presented him with the Lifetime, uh, a Lifetime Achievement Award. And so you could imagine this was kind of a weird experience, right? Because you've got Mr. Rogers coming up and standing in front of all of these soap opera stars, these producers, uh, a lot of folks from daytime television, uh, talk show hosts, all these other famous, uh, you know, who's who sort of of the TV world. And he stands up there and he, you know, he kind of nods as he accepts his award. And then he does something kind of strange. He asks everyone in the audience to pause for 10 seconds and just to think about someone who helped them get to where they are at that moment in time. And at first, people kind of snickered. You know, they didn't know if he was serious. Um, but sure enough, he, he stepped back from the microphone and was silent. And the snickering stopped, and he paused for 10 seconds. And by the end of that, there were many in the room who had tears in their eyes. And he just had this profound effect over people. You know, Mr. Rogers had this power over people. Not a power to control and not a power to manipulate, but a power to restore, to restore dignity and neighborliness. Well, today we're looking at Mark's uh, gospel reading, the triumphal entry, and this in some ways is kind of similar. Uh, we, we see marks of humility in this passage for sure. But there's also quite a few differences between Mark's gospel and Mr. Rogers. Uh, In fact, Mark's gospel probably wouldn't have received a G rating and been played uh, daily on PBS uh, for over 30 years. Uh, And secondly, Jesus came to show more than just neighborliness, didn't he? Uh, He came to inaugurate God's kingdom here on earth. God's kingdom here on earth. And this is what we see happening throughout the gospel of Mark over and over again. We see that this tension has been mounting throughout the gospel And if you've been here since Lent, we've been talking about this tension, these struggles of power that have been building, this confusion that's been building. Jesus has been teaching with this new authority. He's been casting out demons. He's been calming storms. He's been restoring sight to the blind. In fact, immediately before this passage, if you have your Bibles, you can see that the passage right before the triumphal entry is Jesus healing this blind man whose name is Bartimaeus the passage tells us there at the end of chapter 10, it says that immediately Bartimaeus recovered his sight and he followed Jesus along the way. So you get this idea of Bartimaeus just kind of following along the 12 disciples, newly restored sight, wanting to see literally what's gonna happen with Jesus next. And then we see the the triumphal entry. You see, at this point in the gospel, people are starting to get it. They're starting to see that the long-awaited Messiah, this could be him. He's coming. This could be him. But Jesus is also doing some weird things. He's doing some things that are pretty unbecoming of a Messiah. In fact, he's doing the kind of things that if, if you picture a Messiah, you'd kind of want him to be quiet. You'd want to kind of cover up these things and tell Jesus, stop, stop talking like this, Jesus. In fact, three times now in the gospel, Jesus has, has told us that he's going to be going to Jerusalem and there in Jerusalem, he's going to be killed by the hands of the religious leaders. He'll be condemned to death. and Obviously, this rattles his followers. In fact, Peter himself, at one point, rebukes Jesus. He takes Jesus aside. But then Jesus has to put Peter in his place, doesn't he? So a few paragraphs before our triumphal, um, our triumphal entry passage. Mark kind of sums up what's going on here. And it says that Jesus was walking ahead of the disciples and the disciples were amazed and those who followed him were afraid. So they're just very, just trembling as they're following Jesus, as they're getting closer to Jerusalem. They know that their teacher's life is in danger and they know that their own lives are almost in danger as well, but yet they follow him. So again, turn to Mark 11 if you haven't yet. So Mark 11 begins, they drew near to Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives. So geography is theology. Geography is theology, especially in Mark's gospel. Places matter to Mark. And so we see that Jesus is approaching Jerusalem from the east. They climb up the Mount of Olives, which is just a little bit higher than Jerusalem. It provides a great perspective into the holy city. And they stop and they take a break there at Bethany. Well, according to the prophets, This spot, where they are right now, is actually the final judgment seat of Jerusalem. This is where the Messiah is going to come and pronounce judgment over those who have been oppressing Jerusalem. This is the place where he will be inaugurating the kingdom. But Jesus doesn't ask his disciples to take up swords. Jesus doesn't call for a tank to come. Instead, he calls for a pickup truck. He gives his disciples very clear instructions on where to find this. Mark spends a lot of time actually describing this. Not a, not a pickup truck, I'm sorry, a, a donkey, a beast of burden. But you knew that. But Mark spends a lot of time showing us how to find uh, this donkey. He knows exactly where it's tied up. He knows that when people question whether or not to grab the donkey, he tells the disciples exactly what to say. It's almost as if Jesus has been planning this moment for a very long time. It's almost as if something supernatural is about to happen. Again, something amazing is going to happen. But we know this is weird, right? Like, important people don't ride around in, on donkeys, you know, especially today, but also in the ancient world as well. Donkeys weren't some sort of impressive animal. In fact, John Calvin, uh, the reformer, he even realized that this was a little ridiculous as well. He says this moment is kind of ridiculous. Because even in the, in the ancient world, After a king would overtake a city, he wouldn't come in on a donkey. He would ride in on a mighty steed, a great horse of war, a horse that's never been ridden before. In fact, that was supposed to symbolize the freshness of his authority, um, the the cleanness of his victory. It's supposed to symbolize his might. The horse would be covered in in armor and the, the colors of the military, and the king would come in and show all these new people in the city that he was the force now and that they must bow to him. But not Jesus. He comes in on a lowly donkey, a beast of burden. Now, for those paying attention, they would have seen that this is a fulfillment of prophecy. In fact, we just read that passage from Zechariah when we hear that the Lord comes riding on a donkey. But there, there are royal tones here to this as well. It's, it's a donkey that's never before been ridden. So we know that Jesus is clearly sending a symbol here to us. But it's a sign of his humility, not of his might. We see here that Jesus is not a divine warlord with supernatural powers. But no, he was a lowly and humble king. And then he comes into Jerusalem. And it's Passover. The, everyone's preparing for Passover to be celebrated. There have been hundreds and hundreds of pilgrims who've been coming from all over Israel and possibly even all over um, the Mediterranean to come and celebrate this feast with their people. And so Jerusalem was swollen with pilgrims who've come from all over. And I wonder, who was in that crowd who welcomed Jesus that day? Who was there in that crowd? Certainly the 12 apostles, we know that. And as I mentioned earlier, their nerves were absolutely abuzz. Probably every time they looked and saw a Roman soldier, they were probably wondering, is this the moment? Is this now? Is it going to happen? They knew that the time was at hand, that the hour was now. They didn't know exactly what that meant. We knew that Bartimaeus was coming along with them. I I kept laughing, thinking about this blind man whose eyes were probably just bugging out of his head at that moment, just looking at everything, wondering what's going on, probably just full of this childlike joy, just bouncing around, like, this is the guy who restored sight to me, and he's just telling everyone that and just exciting the crowd all the more. And no doubt there were other people there who recognized Jesus as well. Jesus had been ministering for three years throughout Galilee and Judea, He had fed thousands of people miraculously. He had done many amazing things. And so no doubt, people recognized him. And when they saw him, they started throwing their cloaks down. They started grabbing palm branches and waving those throughout the air. These are symbols of of welcoming a king in the ancient world. They're there to show the worthiness of Jesus. And then they break out into song. The The same words that we sang out this morning, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna. Hosanna, which literally means, come, save us, we pray. And they say, here he comes in the name of the Lord, in the line of our father David, a man of God, after God's own heart. Maybe now will be the moment in which the kingdom, his peaceful reign, will finally begin. So where would you be in that crowd? Which character would you align with in that crowd? You know, maybe some of you would be there and, I don't know, perhaps you hadn't heard of Jesus. And so when Bartimaeus tells you this thing, you're kind of captured by that mystery. You're like, wow, this could actually be the Messiah? Or perhaps you've been following Jesus, but you've got this, these questions and these, this anxiety that's about you, not knowing exactly what's going to happen either. Or maybe you're like the pilgrims who are coming to the temple To celebrate the great feast. Coming with tremendous burdens upon your back. Coming with great prayers in your heart. Hoping to catch a glimpse of God. Where are you in the crowd? So what's interesting in this passage, especially in Mark's gospel, is that there in in verse 11, we see that nothing actually happens here. Nothing happens. Jesus comes... He enters Jerusalem, he enters the, the temple, and then it's kind of anticlimactic, isn't it? It's not like Jesus' baptism, where the heavens are torn open, a voice speaks out, the dove descends upon Jesus. It's not like the transfiguration, where his very presence just becomes absolutely radiant, and the disciples want to worship him there. It's not like that. He simply stands there, he sort of tours the place, he looks around, Have you ever wondered, like, what would have Jesus been thinking in that moment? What would Jesus, what was going through his mind at that moment as he was looking upon the temple? Only a few more days he might be thinking, I'll be condemned in this city. Over on that hill, that's where I'm going to be crucified. I wonder if all those events of Holy Week are racing through his mind. Or maybe he's thinking, You know, as Yahweh incarnate, he's thinking of all the things that he had hoped that temple would become but never came to be. And he's thinking, finally, I'm going to restore all of creation to myself here in only a few days. You know, our world is absolutely obsessed with power. It's something that human beings, we vie for and we've been vying for ever since the beginning. Nations are constantly overtaking other nations. Even in our own nation, you can't, Turn on the news without seeing struggles of power, protests, people challenging other people's power. Scandals are always uh, up in the news. People are always vying and trying to take down people from power. And sometimes it's, it's rightfully deserved. I don't want to deny that. But usually the way in which we take power in our society is through manipulation. It's through force. It's by using fear to our benefit. Well, praise God that his ways are not our ways. God is all-powerful. He is almighty. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is also all-loving. And as we've already seen in some of our examples this morning, we've seen examples of his ability to feed thousands, to heal people, to bring joy to people and happiness to them. And here in this passage, I just love it because this image of Jesus riding in on a donkey is such a symbol of our humble king. It's such a great symbol of power. In fact, Martin Luther said it this way. He sits sits not upon a proud steed, an animal of war, but upon a donkey, an animal of peace fit only for burden and labor, and who is here to help man. Jesus comes not to frighten men, but to help them and to carry their burden. Today, brothers and sisters, we're being called to follow the humble Christ, who did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. So the season of Lent has been a season of spring cleaning uh, for myself personally and uh, through some of our conversations for some of you as well, and I'm, I'm great, very grateful for that. Some of you during the past six five weeks have been experiencing a rejuvenation of your prayer life. Some of you, through your fasting, have learned how to more greater depend on God and your desires. Well, now we're entering the final week, the beginning of the end. In fact, in a minute, uh, we're going to be reading the final uh, crucifixion story as a, as a preview of what's to come over this week. And so my invitation to you today is to send your burdens to Christ. Send your burdens to the mighty King who gladly carries your anxieties, who gladly carries your fears and your doubts all the way through Jerusalem and to the cross. He carries your burdens to the cross where the serpent is crushed and where death itself is defeated, where God incarnate is lifted high, where he pays the price and redeems the entire world for himself. Cast your cares upon the cross of Christ. In the name of the Father, the Son,